Welcome, one and all, to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Ahoy, Pete. Fall in. That soldier, forget behind me. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 205, Saints of Imperfection, comes to you now via Tritanium Dimensional Doorstop. Pete, just a bit of fleet news before we arrive at the episode. More Star Trek is coming, this by way of a animated series for children being made by, or rather for, Nickelodeon, that third place purveyor of children's programming. Uh, your thoughts, Pete, on a cartoon for children. Can Star Trek exist for children? Well, I was slightly surprised to read this a couple days ago. Yes, Star Trek has a long-standing relationship, parent companies and all, with uh, Nick, 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 going back to the animated series where I first caught it as a kid in uh, reruns in the 80s and 90s. Um, but given all of the Trek content CBS All Access is attempting to amass, I guess the bean counters looked at it as, well, how are we going to get people to subscribe to this for their kids? And they're putting it on Nick. Maybe they'll cross uh, pollinate with CBS All Access. I'm a little baffled by it. Pete, here's how you can be less baffled with rumors of Nickelodeon owner Viacom, owned by National Amusements Incorporated, remerging with CBS Incorporated, owned by National Amusements Incorporated. Uh, this could be kind of like an early, here's my take, this could be kind of an early like, hey, look how all the future divisions under one corporate umbrella play nice together. Look, new bosses, we're playing nice. Um, I think it's a foregone conclusion that those two, those two companies, uh, which of course were halved about 15 years ago, that they're going to remerge in the next couple years. So I think this kind of makes this makes sense in a future corporate way that maybe you know taking it outside of that precious bubble of all access uh, might might make short term sense. I think this makes longer term sense. The tachyons are the only ones that know, Matt. With that. On to our mission briefing. Burnham's amplified heartbeat punctuates her run to engineering to find Tilly gone. She explains via voiceover how words define who we are, like officer, orphan, widower, shipmate. But there's no word for the unique agony of uncertainty, unless, Matt, you count uncertainty as a word questions indeed pete about tilly's fate time does seem to pass uh with burnham's voiceover suggesting a sense of faith in the time ahead only duty remains she says and as she enters the bridge all look at her and her agony uh suddenly though after this kind of somewhat uh cerebral somewhat surreal opening we're immediately injected to the immediacy of the story there's you know, alarm clacks on. Detmer has detected Spock shuttle. It's only 25,000 kilometers away. It has shields up and weapons hot. And all of a sudden, Pete and me, who has not seen the previews, I'm like, oh, man, this must be the Spock episode. Pete told me there was spoiler stuff out there. We're about to get Spock in, like, the next five minutes as Pike hails the shuttle. 
it's a great transition from that contemplative silence there to klaxons on the bridge. And we find out that uh, the shuttle is increasing speed this after the hail that Pike sends. It also uh, ignites the nebula's hydrogen to disrupt their sensors, comes to a full stop, which they've flown past now. Um, and we're on the clock, Matt. If he enters that nebula, they'll lose him, you know, kind of like Wrath of Khan and basically every time there's a nebula on our Star Trek screen. Pete, one day, maybe in the 25th century, they will invent sensor uh, sensors that can read into nebulae. Uh, but here, of course, we have uh, with that that photon torpedo sent off target with the classic sound. I know they did that in the first season, but it's worth pointing out. Uh, they've they've knocked that uh, that shuttle offline. They bring it into the shuttle bay. Pike and Burnham approach it. We have Non and a security team, phasers drawn. Burnham then powers her uh, phaser up to uh, the back of the shuttle opens and off walks. Agent Giorgio, Giorgio 7, double Giorgio 7. I don't know, Pete. They're <laughs> workshopping it for the Giorgio series. Burnham is, of course, the last one to lower her phaser. And I love that we get the mirror theme echoed here. I guess, Pete, it is a repurposed mirror theme to remind us that this is, of course, mirror Agent Giorgio. Quite the welcome, my dear. And as uh, Burnham drops the phaser finally there, Yes, that great flourish of uh, Jeff Russo's music. But um, how about the trend of people arriving this season and the camera languishing on people who are watching people arrive? Uh, I, I Perhaps, Pete, it's becoming part of the, the visual language of the show. Perhaps it's something that the... Uh, the uh, director of photography. I must admit, Pete, I don't know if it's the same director of photography each week. Normally it is. Then obviously you have different directors directing the episode, but that uh, director of photography, you know, providing a line of continuity there. Speaking of credits, Pete, the credits show Shazad Latif, Wilson Cruz, and special guest star Michelle Yeoh. This in addition to the uh, regular regulars. The episode is written by Kirsten Beyer and directed by David Barrett. Barrett, a veteran of uh, Star Trek Discovery, having directed Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, uh, as well as a bunch of Blue Bloods and a whole bunch of TV. You got your castle, your Supa ninjas, uh, and just a litany more. So this is a, a, a well-practiced uh, TV director. Pike and Georgiou here catch up. It turns out they met at the Academy, Matt. She was the sharpest tool in the shed, drank them all under the table, but still knew every regulation by week two. A tactful way here for him to go about asking why she had not identified herself when hailed, which is standard procedure and a non-answer. He gleefully puts all this together uh, along with her evasiveness to assume that she's on a completely awesome classified mission in a turbo lift she flashes her fancy section 31 black badge and uh, immediately it's clear she's now section 31 she says she's here to hunt down a starfleet officer wanted for murder nay multiple murders as she looks at burnham 
and uh, Pike reaffirms that he and Burnham feel Spock is innocent. I guess it's the search for Spock's innocence. Uh, <laughs> but the Turbolift takes them what appears to be directly to Pike's ready room. And uh, waiting in there, Pete, is Leland on the holophone behind the desk. Nice little effects moment with the desk bisecting his holographic image. Yes, and the flourishes where they're catching up here, the the noticing of Pike's gray hair from his old friend who doesn't have any hair anymore. Because the last time that they caught up, um, Leland was up to his behind in Alligators on Cestus 3, Matt. You know, that the location of the Gorn in the original series. No, is it really? I, I must confess I had not looked. That that's yes. that's the Gorn Cestus three? Those are the alligators. Wow. Fun moment there. Kudos, Kirsten Beyer, etc. Uh this banter back and forth, Pete, it uh it has the sheen of friendship, although it's kind of Pike who's picking up that maybe there's not a friendly tone underneath it all. Leland identifies himself as the head of section thirty one. Pete, if you were going to make a show about it, he would be like M, and Agent Giorgio would be James Bond. Uh, Leland wants Agent Giorgio back on her mission ASAP. No favors for that old friend in Pike, though. And uh, also a reminder that Section 31 does what it does so that the regular fleet can do what they do, which is a great way to really hammer home what I think for even longtime Star Trek fans like me who might be a little less familiar with Section 31 or might have some of the the Deep Space Nine and Enterprise stuff spread out. It's a nice one-sentence way to say, here's what we do, plain and simple. Yo literally eats up the scenery and the apple here, the punctuations throughout the conversation, Matt, so much so that once we're done here with Giorgio and she's released, the liaison on the way here to Discovery, the walk and talk with Burnham and Giorgio gets even better because, of course, Duty Bound um, directed Burnham is unable to let uh, Pike know who uh, Emperor Giorgio really is. So much going on, Pete. First of all, because I watch the YouTube channel Cinema Sins, I know that there's a trope called jerk or other words jerk eats an apple and here we have jerk eating an apple as much as we love Giorgio. second of all pete at the end of the conversation that Giorgio has with burnham she drops the apple and burnham suggests that she's a snake pete that's a classical <laughs> reference to some earther religions the snake the apple etc in engineering here stamets speaks to burnham and explains that the universe never Let's anything go to waste. Uh, so said Lavoisier, law of conservation of mass states that in a chemical reaction, mass is neither created nor destroyed. So they could scan the cocoon for human remains. And as they're doing that, positing the possibility here that all of Tilly's atoms were transported rather than decomposed, there shouldn't be any trace of her remains. This is one example of which of which the episode has many, where it kind of explains basic science that we all kind of sort of know. It restates it so it's at the at the tops of our heads, and then puts it into easy to understand Star Trek terms. So we have, you know, 
a scientific law, then we have, hey, that thing should act like transporter. And it's a really, really nice way to make sure everybody's on the same page, period. You know, uh, kudos, buyer, etc. cetera. Um, and even Pete hammering home, if it's a transporter, then we can find Tilly. Um, in the upside down, Pete, Tilly awakens. <laughs> She's pulled out of that transporter uh, cocoon into the network proper. May is there too. Uh, some spores alight on Tilly, then burn her. It burns. The spores are trying to break her down before May uh, takes them away. Uh, May needs help. She can't fail lest her whole species die. Pete, that's what's called setting up your B plot there. There's a mission kill the monster. Yes. And the science, from a story standpoint, established that she was broken down on our side of the universe and reconstituted in the network here. Back in our universe, Matt, Pike tells Burnham that the Section 1 liaison has arrived. Uh, she peers into the mess hall to see Tyler and reacts here. Um, he's supposed to be, of course, on Kronos, um, and Pike knows that he had left to serve as Torchbearer. Now he's Black Ops, but she stands up for him. She knows Tyler. Uh, it was Volk and not Tyler who killed an officer, Matt, an officer uh, trapped in the network now, that same one. We'll see a little later in this episode. It's all coming together. It is. And I like, too, that the show does enough recap. Maybe it's with a wink to the audience. Maybe it's just to make sure, as we've discussed in prior episodes, to make sure that everybody's on the same page. But to just go, hey, Tyler, Section 31, formerly Torchbearer Tyler, formerly Voke, and you go, wow, we have been some places with this guy in the last 20 episodes. Uh, Pike is picking up how fluid things are, including how Burnham received Giorgio. Burnham leans in. She asks for trust and time. Uh, this, of course, because Burnham does not want to explain the whole, you know, alternate evil universe thing to Pike at this time. Uh, she is given that trust in that time. She enters the mess hall to see Tyler. They're happy-ish to see each other. Uh, Nan watches from a few tables away, and it's mentioned that she's now chief of security. Uh, again, Pete, this is a small example of the show not beating you over the head with like, hello, I'm Nan, I'm chief of security, and having that last episode or two episodes ago, just kind of working it in when the story needs it. But Pete, the big update here on Tyler He's never going back to Kronosh. <laughs> I dug the uh, pronunciation as well in my notes there. Classified, this word pops up pretty frequently in his new vocabulary. Um, but very interestingly noted that everybody at 31, which is what you call it. It's what the cool kids call it when you're in it. You don't call it section 31. I knew that. I knew that. I'm a cool kid. 31. <laughs> No, you're not. Uh, but anyway, everybody at 31 thinks of it as a place where it makes sense, not in spite of who they are, but because of it. They're good people, Matt, which is what the bad people tell themselves. <laughs> wow. Uh, bottom line, though, Pete, bad as you might think Tyler is, uh, he says he's going to protect Spock. And with that, he's ready to be briefed. Uh, they're going to have a briefing on the bridge because reasons but let's not linger on that pete back to the network we go may and tilly they're a monster hunting they find a toxic tree may says that the toxicity is used by the monster to hurt the Josep. 
Uh, they mutually share their appreciation for the respective sciences, that of our world and that of the uh, mycelial network. And Tilly wants a guarantee of an out. If she helps May, can she be returned to her universe? May uh, seeming to make that deal. Interesting in this exchange is the disclosure by May after Tilly asked when the monster first appeared that it arrived when your Stamets opened a door into our universe. Oh so, no, what could it be, Pete? Even on first viewing, oh boy, can't imagine what the monster will be. But we'll we'll break that down when we talk some theories in a little bit. There's this tree bark with the lethal toxin, as mentioned before. So we've we've established that, which will come back a little bit later as well. But to the bridge, Matt, for that briefing that Tyler's just going to arrive in time for, you know, he who uh, took the life of uh, Stamets's significant other. So uh, a real obstacle towards this important discussion about retrieving his other lost friend. So what's the plan? It's spelled out, Pete, even with helpful graphics behind the Stamets. The Discovery uh, has been jumping through the network uh, each time they each time they travel it. They're briefly in the mycelial plane for milliseconds. Now the plan is to half jump into the network. I'm not quite sure how that science would be, Pete. I wish somebody could break it down for me. Wait, Pike says the ship will be a, a, a doorstop. That's when I said, oh, I understand that. <laughs> um, through the mycelium, though the mycelium will try and digest the, the, the ship, They'll have an hour. Pete, that made me think of all the times you've mentioned story clocks. So we have an easy-to-understand metaphor of how the science is going to work, plus a countdown to doom. Uh, Pete, all they need to do is physically avoid the intersections of the mycelial space and normal space, lest they get twisted like what happened on the Glen. So now short-term and long-term threats have been established. How they're going to do it has been established. I'm totally clear. They've spelled it all out, Matt. So with that, Pike orders Bryce for shipwide hail here and explains, uh, just like we had in the trailers for season two, that Starfleet is a promise. He gives his life for you to wind up in a BB chair to only say yes and no for the rest of his life at some point. And you do it for him. They're going here after Tilly because God knows she would do that. For them, nobody gets left behind, Matt. We see a montage of everyone evacuated to the safe spaces in the starboard section. Uh, we head back to engineering. Stamets and Burnham enter the cube. That's the only place where the intersection is safe. Pike orders it to be black alert, and the ship uh, gets ready to jump in. And Pete, first viewing, the way it kind of literally goes, kerplunk. I wasn't crazy about second viewing. There's a little bit more nuance to this visual of the sea of the mycelia, but uh, still a, a somewhat imperfect special effects moment to mine eyes. And the Josep had never encountered something of this mass. So Tilly has to assure uh, May here that they're not there to attack and vice versa, that she won't abandon May. Um, and the pinky swear here, Matt, uh, nice little addition that is a callback later on. But we've got to hurry. 
the sensors are already indicating the mycelium are attacking the hull. And uh, then once Tilly's in the hull, she can't find anybody on the sensors. May says, maybe they died trying to save you. Thanks for that. Pete, as Tilly and May are in the hall, there's a very sloppy shot at the 25 minute 40 second where Tilly's response to May has been flipped. Like literally her badge is on the wrong side. I think they didn't have footage the way they wanted it in order to make make it clear in terms of where both were standing in the hall and whatnot and just turned it backwards. Uh, shame on them, Pete. In the last week, Gersha Phillips said that they did computer CGI special effects to add ranks to people's uh, sleeves in some of the early season two episodes because they forgot to put them in there. You can't flip a badge, but oh well, Pete, it's only going to exist this way for forever. The ship continues to buckle and May reiterates that there's a monster that pursues discovery. Oh man, Pete, is it going to be as scary as the salt monster? Is it going to be like uh, the, the 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 crystalline entity can't wait to see what this monster will be. Every time they fly through, which I believe has been once or twice since, um, you know who had wound up in there, Matt, and the appearance of the monster. Um, but back we come to the theme of family that the crew of Discovery is Tilly's family. Uh, so she grabs a phaser. She's, uh, you know, heading around looking for the threat. Burnham and Stamets read a human life sign in Section 14, Weapon Storage. Uh, that, of course, where Tilly got her Type 3 phaser, Matt, which is more powerful and larger than the Type 1 and the Type 2. That's how you use it, Pete, the counts. Uh, they... Well, soon enough, Pete, Burnham, and Stamets meet Tilly and May. They're all amazed that everybody else is okay, but May reminds everyone of, you know, the monster. We hear a deep cry that then sounds more clearly like, I just remember my so-called life, Pete. There was Wilson Cruz that was in that, and it kind of sounds a little bit like him. Then, Pete, we see, dramatic reveal, a bedraggled Wilson Cruz. This was a very poorly kept spoiler in the press photos, which leaked out to everybody else on social media, this image of Stamets has been out there. When did I message you, Matt? Like Monday? Yeah. You, you Well, you, you told me certainly by midweek, not even midweek, it was several days before the episode aired. You said, you know, there are major spoilers out there. So literally I've barely been on social media for fear of finding out the thing which, to be fair, I mean, this is a delightful episode. Maybe not as great as last week's, but this is a delightful episode. What Wilson Cruz said at New York Comic Con, you will find Culver where you last saw him. Yes, that was totally true. So it wasn't amazingly, like, mind-blowing, uh, this reveal. But uh, I'm glad I didn't have it revealed early. Yeah. Uh, we had to expect that he was coming back. Maybe not in the flesh in which... He is now, and even then, I think that bears some monitoring that situation as if he's just going to report to duty uh, next week. I mean, they did do that with Saru, though, but that was kind of in keeping with the rest of the story after his threat ganglia fell off and he felt the surge of unlimited power. Bottom line, Pete, uh, 
It's reported to the bridge that something resembling Dr. Culber is here in the mycelial uh, upside down. Uh, the bridge loses contact, but in the network, May says that Culber continues uh, to hurt the, the, the Jossep. Uh, he's covered with bark from the Yale tree. Uh, Burnham intuits that this, therefore, is a way for him to defend himself, not to to offend, and it's proof of motivational thought. And as we know, Pete, when you have proof of motivational thought, that's proof that he's alive. Uh, Sarah gets through again because he knows Pete needs a ticking clock update. Uh, <laughs> 78% of my helial, my, mycelial hull intrusion has occurred. Uh, with that, Pete, the bridge gets rocked with uh pretty good looking mycelial waves cutting the bridge don't touch it lest you get twisted around and only now we go to red alert which seemed like a delay i mean granted you knew you were taking the ship into harm's way however they transfer the uh bridge functions to aram's station uh as the hull um of the port nacelle is now too compromised and pike tells her she's going to need to hold it together under thrust. Tyler, Matt, suddenly taps his comm badge. What? Like, Hashtag like not my Star Trek. <laughs> like that'll ever be a thing in the 1980s. Um, to uh, transmit an emergency channel to control of Section 31, uh, they need an assist and suddenly that ship, which we still have not named, decloaks. It's Leland. Uh, this is not Tyler's call, Chris. And uh, they stand by to assist. Stupid Chris. Uh, a tractor beam is asked for. Uh, instead, they get like tractor anchors, which they call them rigs later in the episode. Tractor rigs. Uh, bottom line, Leland gives Discovery five minutes, and whose call it is as to who pulls the ship out. It might be Leland's, it might be Pike's. It seems to be up for debate in this manly man battle. Back to the mycelial end of things, in the mycelial quarters of Discovery, Stamets finds Culber. Pete, that's the last place we saw Culber and Stamets, as you might recall. See, symmetry. Uh, Stamets reflects on going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on their third date, how they cared for each other. Back then, Culber held out his hand to Stamets. Here now, Stamets holds out his hand. On their way to see, on his way to see the de Kooning's Matt, you know, that Dutch abstract expressionist painter. Shout out to Fred in the Netherlands. Pete, when it comes to Fred, it's all connected. We have the happy uh, reuniting there. Burnham, May, and Tilly arrive. May uses her little spore friends to zap uh, uh, Tilly. You see, Pete, that was set up when Tilly got zapped initially. Uh, steals the Type 3 phaser, does May, ready to shoot the, the interloper. Both sides are monsters to each other, Pete. Do you get that message there? Tilly then disarms May, but how is Stamets here? Stamets rationalizes that seeing Culber between the two worlds so quickly after death must have been, wait, Stamets that brought him here in a scene whose job it is, Pete, to explain to us how this, this, this unbelievable resurrection can happen. And you know what? They explain it well. They do. Between previously filmed flashbacks and then a new one, where Stamets gets out of the bed in sickbay and cradles Hugh. 
the tear from Dr. Culber, the kiss on his cheek there, Stamets brought him to the mycelial network. It's thermodynamics. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It only changes states even in death. So as a result, the energy passed through him when he was the link to the network, as Tilly points out, like a lightning rod. And he took the shape that uh, was recognized in the mycelial network as a foreign body and attacked the way that healthy cells attack cancer. Time to go home. Happy ending, right? Uh, the story takes us to what I'm provisionally sometimes my notes calling the USS 31. Uh, Pete, I just assume they're really into 31. Uh, Leland is ready to pull the plug, but uh, Giorgio, who of course is not in charge of the ship, uh, decides to reroute power to give the Discovery three minutes, uh, or perhaps even three and a half minutes, Pete, if we're really lucky. Uh, there's chaos on the Discovery Bridge, Pete. In this an episode where behind the scenes there was chaos on the show's bridge, the series bridge, but in engineering the cube is reminded to be an airlock. Again, kudos to this episode for breaking down all these things that could be difficult or could be confusing and just explaining what they are in simple terms. Stamets is ready to pull Kolber through. See, nothing to worry about. Stamets goes through, pulls Kolber's hand. Kolber's hand doesn't make it. Kolber can't come through, and I was shocked pete shocked watching this we yeah we had to expect some further complication this with a decent remnant of the episode remaining if you were looking at your literal clock there um so what they have to do matt is use the cocoon but may explains that she did not create him um and the way that she came across, uh, she couldn't maintain her form. She had to inhabit Tilly. So what to do? And in a really great moment here, Wilson Cruz, uh, beneath the, the makeup and, you know, the, the frizzy hair from having been in the network for so long, he explains to Paul that the Josep can reclaim his matter, that he has to let him go. Also, great special effects there as, you know, the, the, the insides of him get, get lit up a little bit by the, uh, the attempt of the Josep to reclaim him. Um, he's ready to say goodbye. Pete, I think this is a point where we, the audience, are ready to say goodbye too. I was, I was getting ready to be angry that they had brought him back just to kill him again. Uh, but that's when Tilly notes that human DNA was the missing piece for May. And if Culber's DNA is added to the cocoon, there might be a way. I'm a little vague on the science here, but certainly the notion that the cocoon on the other end is made with stuff from our universe, not the mycelial network. Therefore, if he goes through, all should be okay. So that appears to maybe be on the road to resolution. May doesn't want to say goodbye to Tilly. They have a connection too. And in a supreme moment of connection, Tilly notes that Stamets lost someone in Culber. So now everybody's rowing in the same direction in terms of trying to keep connections alive. Tilly says that she really believes the universe will bring them back together somehow. You know, like when the Red Angel mystery comes to a complete head sometime later this season? <laughs> Question mark? 
Uh, Pete, there's another pinky swear that they will get brought back together. Uh, with that, all the full humans in the group enter the cube. Stamets promises to see Hugh on the other side. Black Alert is called. The battered Discovery whines and groans, then twists and turns and finally comes back completely to normal space. Even the crew on the USS 31, provisional name, are impressed by what's gone on. Uh, Saru Page is engineering. Burnham says they made it. Pike heads down. Tyler gets tethered to the bridge, at least metaphorically. After all, Pete, that's protocol. Liaison protocol here. In engineering, the cocoon spores chitter, and suddenly a naked hue fetus materializes. Well, certainly fetal position, although, Pete, looking man-sized from what we can see. Um Time passes, and uh, on the the bridge of the USS-31, in the way of redress of the Shenzhou Bridge, Pike beams on. Admiral Cornwell is there. Great to see her this season. Leland, too. She has a seven signals update. Uh, The findings of the first one have been examined and unexpected. The signals have left tachyon signals. And as soon as my brain was searching for what that is, luckily Leland hammers home at least his first reaction that's primarily evidence of time travel and then you know astonished gasp for me pike says well it could be cloaking it could be transporter activity uh so the show giving itself some wide berth there but pete who's the only person who has more information on all this lieutenant spock of course still a fugitive matt and the same way that pike and Leland are both right and both wrong and not shaking each other's hands and needs to stop the manlier than thou BS. Uh, they also need to work together to find Lieutenant Spock. Yes, no more fighting behind the scenes, says the episode. Let's work together. Uh, Cornwell notes in an odd line, Pete, I'd like to discuss later nation building is never pretty. Uh, Of course, highlighting that they're on the same team. Uh, Leland admits he crossed the line with Pike. They're kind of, there's there's, uh, some thawing there of the ice between them. So what's the bottom line with the trail to Spock shuttle? Tyler is going to stay on Discovery for the time being slash foreseeable future slash for forever. And Captain Giorgio, not. Burnham puts a phaser back, Matt, which of course is when every incoming message from, uh, Philippa Giorgio comes through, takes it in the science lab here and her holographic form uh, and explains that uh, she may just be an altruist now and Burnham might just be a Terran. Uh, Burnham wants to know her intentions, ellipse towards Spock. Um, and uh, she points out, Giorgio does, that she just wants to find him before a vigilante mob does or a posse of trigger happy Starfleet cowboys. The last time that was invoked, Pete, it was in unification part two. Uh, but Georgia also asks for trust from Burnham. Uh, and then mirroring the start of the episode in voiceover, Burnham reflects on connections, keeping chaos at bay. Even as we see Culber, uh, she reflects on joy and love resurrection too. Pike, meanwhile, is looking at the Red Angel images as Burnham muses on a clear path made difficult. And uh, in a lovely moment, Pete, Tilly is in the shared quarters, kind of 
settling down after the fact one gets the impression that she's had a you know a shower and a change of clothes and relaxing burnham enters uh they share a hug in a really uh really nice moment and as you pointed out you cannot escape the idea of the path here and uh the words written for them matt uh the greater hand writing the story of course that uh it guide them well as in real time outside of this episode there was a baton being passed but not really willingly Pete, we have a threat analysis coming in. It's hot. It's heavy. Let's start with somebody who herself is hot, Giorgio. Yes. Have to wonder what the long game is here. Is it getting back to her universe? Does Spock hold the key? Do the Red Angels? Is there any connection at all? But we know we cannot trust her. This episode probably is not meant to be a, uh, a backdoor pilot for uh, Agent Giorgio, nor is it probably not meant to be a, uh, a pilot for Picard, the series, more on that in a bit. But Pete, the result of Giorgio and Section 31's involvement in this episode is I have a clearer understanding of what I want from that show, and Pete, how much I want that show. Yeah, can't wait to get that. Um, we haven't even had the casting on Picard apart from, of course, Sir Patrick Stewart just yet. Surely, as they've mentioned before, and Alex Kurtzman is on record to probably look to deploy the um, Giorgio show, which if we're going to call it Picard, the other one should be called Giorgio show. Pete, I think uh, it's going to be Star, uh, uh, Star Trek colon Agent Giorgio. Star Trek, yo, George Osho. <laughs> but anyway, uh, looking to deploy that likely after a third season of Discovery. Still not greenlit, Matt, but again, in the word of industry trades and not anti-Discovery YouTubers, fate complete, Latin for it's going to happen. It does amaze me how people who don't watch discovery can go on YouTube and make videos for other people who don't watch discovery, but watch videos about not watching discovery Pete, but I digress Leland getting more screen time in this episode than he's had thus far. Uh, I must admit I was underwhelmed in his series introduction. You know, the deleted scene as shown at uh, San Diego comic-con because I was like, it's a deleted scene. Who cares? Turns out, Pete, those Star Trek Discovery brains knew of what they talked. And, uh, you know, the fact that he exists in kind of this post-season one, pre-season two space, really paying off well here because he feels like he's been part of Star Trek lore for more than the last two episodes. The backstory between him and Captain Pike the friendship there. One hopes to gain an even greater glimpse into that now mistrustful of one another by the very virtue of section 31's mission. We get to as a villain, not a monster in my book, Pete, but a villain uh, from May here, who of course has kidnapped Tilly. Uh, 
on first viewing while watching the episode, not even when it was over, I felt like May's contribution was a little on the nose. Like, look, the people you don't like are monsters, but they're people too. So let's reassess our monsters and, and all that. But it's, it's all very, very ably presented by the character of May. And of course, her perspective is not wrong, particularly under the threat of, you know, a species holocaust. That and when you look at it from the biological standpoint, as is pointed out in Byer's script, uh, the, the cells defending themselves against invaders rather than something with an agenda. And Pete, what helps keep away the invaders of data loss and magnetic waves that might erase our computer tapes that go bleep and bloop? It is, of course, the people who support us on patreon.com slash fantastic geek, making sure our message, our podcast, our discussion stays out there amongst the stars or at least, you know, here on Earth. Our white blood cells, Matt, inoculate us to all sorts of technological problems Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content, and there's all sorts of levels from there. So thank you again, one and all. Pete, let's look at the long-range sensors here. Some of them really long way out. The signal being sent maybe through time, maybe through the Picard series. This is an episode written by Picard series staffer, Kirsten Beyer. Is this our Picard backdoor pilot? Let's start with that. I don't believe it to be. They were so demonstrative at New York Comic Con that they are not directly connected. Now, could they be conning us about that, Matt? You know, because Benedict Cumberbatch is not playing con. <laughs> He's playing John, whatever. Um, Pete, kind of an outgrowth of this notion, this possible notion that time travel is occurring with the Red Angel. I know that there's the tinfoil hat people out there whose theories we don't need to get into, but th there is that one theory of uh, Discovery looks different because it's actually another alternate timeline. Prime is what they mean it when they mean not TOS, but also not Kelvin. I'm not suggesting there's any credence to that. But has a new timeline somehow been created with the appearance of the Red Angel? No, it hasn't. Wow. Um, and, and people, I, I get it. And we deep dive on this stuff all the time. But so much of this is done with, they have ruined Star Trek. No, they haven't. The back and forth. Can we just watch this and appreciate it for what it is? rather than make it like it's some big affront to all that has come before and the need to suddenly determine through the minute details that they're changing what has come before. But to be fair, Pete, did not Tom Paris and Tuvok and others create a an alternate 1990s where they met Sarah Silverman when they went back in time from the, the Starship Voyager? Like, couldn't it be possible? I'm not saying this therefore explains Klingons with hair or without or with ridges or without or, you know, zippy uniforms or not, but could there be some sort of, uh, could there be a ripple effect? There could, but there isn't. And that this is, 
in a time where we have the Kelvin universe movies and where we're going to get an extension the furthest out we've ever been other than little snippets if it's not a short trek from a thousand years past discovery which is the furthest date we've ever gone or some of the enterprise uh you know adventures in time with what was that the enterprise j yes oh yeah um being a bit more serious or grounded to this show or whatever we we talked a bit about the the final lines here uh a voiceover which let's not forget pete you can add a voiceover at a later stage it's different than that day somebody called action and somebody stood on their mark and set a line this 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 closing bit about a greater hand guiding a crew to perhaps a better future uh are these final lines written by berg and herberts on their way out is this a line written by kurtzman on the way in is this written uh before the removal after is it a wink is it a ego move is it a sad look back is it just coincidence well, unless somebody confirms it for us, we'll never know. But it certainly has the ring of that, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And it's not even to wade into like, oh, I mean, Bergen Harbors are bad. Although, you know, if you're running a, if you're running an environment that is a human resources affront and people are not feeling, you know, basically safe and basically you know, able to get through the pressures of the day, you know, that's not good. I'm, I'm not trying to excuse that, but... We don't have a dog in the fight versus Bergen Harberts or, or Kurtzman. Um, it just seemed, Pete, in an episode that was the final one to be overseen by Bergen Harberts to have this declaration of, of, of beautiful things ahead with grand new leadership. It, it, it just seems to stick out. It does indeed. As did the remark, Matt, that Burnham made earlier in the episode about Stamets as a widower. We've never had confirmation that they were married. What we have had from the show is uh, many, many times now, again, we talk about the flavor of the writing room. There's times where the show gives you the information that you need when you need it. I mean, for example, you think back to the weirdo black badges in episode 103 that then disappeared completely. Uh, you can now understand, okay, that's a symbol of section 31. You can understand uh at least in your in your head you know okay so the black badges went away because whatever the jump the the, the sport drive was now working or you know whatever it is you can now kind of rationalize that same thing here pete i mean you don't throw out the term widower without there having been a wedding so i guess that means the two of them were were wed uh, pete whether it was in a church a synagogue a mosque a non-denominational uh, non-religious place, uh, married by the captain, who knows? The Giorgio in Spock shuttle uh, at the beginning of the episode, we're told that she found it adrift. Leland later on says that Spock went through great lengths to conceal his path, that Burnham might know where he is. Of course, there's going to be some kind of wait he always talked about this, and if we go there, we'll find him type of reveal. But uh, why was she continuing on in the shuttle she found adrift to lead the discovery elsewhere? 
was it to lead the discovery elsewhere or was it to lose the discovery? Was it with the knowledge that, uh, that Spock's former captain, that Spock's stepsister were heavily invested in the case, that they were hot on Spock's trail and she needed to get some distance away from them to deflect from section 31, to deflect away from Spock, to give a dead end to the, the, the discovery. I think as cute as it is a reveal, like surprise for last episode and this episode, you were chasing the wrong person. I think it kind of holds water again in this writer room context of it kind of doesn't get spelled out in part because there's emergencies and there's this and there's that. But to me, it kind of makes sense that she's just trying to put distance between her and discovery and have discovery stop what they're doing and, and stop the search for Spock. Two hardcore original series references in this episode. The first already mentioned, Matt, Cestus 3 from the uh, first season episode Arena, that where uh, Kirk fights a member of the Gorn hegemony there. So the alligator reference to the Gorn. We've seen a Gorn skeleton before on Discovery. It was in... um, Lorca's uh, creepy room that I'd, I'd love if we return back to at some point. <laughs> Who knows what location it's been turned into now. The other was Deneva, where uh, Leland apparently uh, took out the wrong ambassador. And uh, in her limited time, Giorgio has already discovered that behind a firewall she wasn't supposed to see. Um, and Section 31 has court martials even for people not of their universe. But um, Deneva is the, um, the planet glimpsed in Operation Annihilate, that with the freaky blobby bat-like things on uh, the planet where uh, Kirk's uh, brother was. Two fun references to be sure. Um, you know, if you're going to have to mention random places not near here, then by all means mention, you know, places that, that are deep uh, Star Trek cuts. Um, I must confess, Pete, I need to go back and take another look at that line uh, delivered to Leland about his, uh, his interaction with the ambassador. Maybe I just misheard it, but I kind of read it as... Maybe he killed the ambassador. Maybe he was, maybe he kind of was intimate with the ambassador. Like that was the wrong person to to do that with. Um, regardless, it really adds some great shading to Leland as, as somebody working uh, on the fringe. Speaking of Leland, question for you, Pete. Uh, in that scene with Leland and Pike and Cornwell, there's a curious line, nation building is never pretty. Mm-hmm. What nation is being built here? Is it the nation of the United Federation of Planets? Is it? It just seems so out of left field. Well, I think that's a reference to where um, Leland, Giorgio, and Tyler were coming from in the mission to Kronos. Um, what with the nation building going on behind the scenes there. Ooh, that certainly works for me. Uh, how about Giorgio? talking in the open and I'm glad at least the script clarifies that she does some of her work in uh, her best work in plain sight, but she's just marching through the hallways and 
blurts out her complete title as emperor, which uh, Leland knows but does not use. Well, blurts out in that they're having a walk and talk. It's not like she says, for I am the <laughs> emperor. I mean, it is kind of like, it's not quite under, it's not stage under her breath, but it is kind of like, it's mentioned in passing where I think if you were walking by her, you would hear, you know, uh, you'd hear one of those five or six words that were in her title and official name. So to me, it worked. I did like the notion that she is comfortable operating in plain sight. I had wondered, like, I guess enough people know the black badge to fear the black badge, but clearly Tyler is in less than plain. Like Tyler is calling attention to himself, not because he's got all the black outfit and whatnot, but he's walking around with this, you know, special security badge i just wonder like now everybody knows section 31 is on the ship how how does that work for these people who previously have just been like you know i think like the deep space nine era stuff where it's just like yep i'm a i'm gonna i'm a guy in a nondescript suit and and how do i get things done i don't have a utility belt or a phaser rifle i just kind of stuff happens because i'm connected well, again, we've seen a black badge going all the way back to episode three that it's been referenced again this season that people know Section 31 is out there, black ops, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not as if they're naive. And I'm sure um, given the smarts in our writing room, Matt, there will be expositional dialogue to make it clear that they're walking around everybody else and understood what it would be a little later this season. May makes a distinction when talking about the monster and that uh, Tilly's, that your Stamets appeared. This brings up the concept of multiple Stamets's. We know there was the mirror Stamets who was messing around with the mycelial network. So have we put another doorstop in there from a character standpoint that we could see some other people that may have gone into the network? Uh, I think that just as we saw in the Deep Space Nine era, uh, the ability to have fun once a season for four or five seasons with with your Mirror Mirror Universe episode. Um, I think that there is that possibility for the future of Discovery. Would I personally... Uh, it, Pete, if I had survived the writer's room coup and not Alex Kurtzman, and I was in charge, uh, much as the Klingon Empire seems to run sometimes, um, I would not advocate for a mirror storyline this season, in part because we have a mirror storyline this season, which is, you know, Mirror Giorgio is running around and interacting with our people. So I don't know that we need to go back to that place again this season. Um, could we? Okay, maybe. Uh, I think it's one of those lines that probably gets discussed for an hour in the writer's room and you land on your Stamets a, so you can leave the door open in case you want to have the other Stamets or Stamets from the, the third universe uh, show up at a later point. But in the interim, it's kind of that, you know, there's my people and there's your people. Oh, and it also kind of implicitly acknowledges that there was another Stamets popping around here. But we're not talking about that. So you're telling me Anthony Rapp won't be fitted for a blonde goatee anytime soon? That, that would be my guess. How about 
uh, May and her door closing to the network because that will not definitely be opened again this season. It's it's so interesting to think how many of these mysteries it's it's the plainest answer that Star Trek Discovery gives us, and that's not a criticism, but just you know again. You know, we're going to find Culber where we left him or we saw him last. What does that mean? Oh, wait, it means exactly like we saw, you know, we saw him where we saw him and now we're back there. Same thing with May, you know, somebody decided to write the line to, to essentially say, let us promise to meet again. Now, when is that? I don't know. I would be shocked if it's not picked up on. To be honest, Pete, I would be surprised if we don't see her again this season um, because I feel like they're not exactly in the mode of like, I think of Moriarty and Next Generation. Oh, maybe we will meet again. Oh no, the Sherlock Holmes people are suing us, so we're not going to do another one for four or five years. But we totally meant to do one like next year. Like I think, I think they're a little bit shorter term with some of these arcs that have an arc direction, and this is a direction that says, "Let's meet again, friend." Kind of like tachyons are, right? <laughs> tachyons, am I right? That's the T-shirt we need. Tachyons, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> it's the it's it's the Star Trek equivalent of aliens. If you're uh, what's his name, Sucalis from uh, Ancient Aliens, there, <laughs> uh, yeah, it could be time travel. It could just be cloaking devices or transporters. It it could be your replicator. For all we know, could could be anything. Spock uh, wanted to make a cookie, so he replicated <laughs> a cookie. Okay. Do Vulcans eat cookies? Uh, I mean, it's probably some sort of like beetroot cookie that's you know filled with kale and beetroot. I see or no, something. I see no logic in dessert. Uh, well, how about what what we would call a cookie? Maybe a better term would be like a Cliff Bar or something like that. Something that can deliver you, uh, you know, some protein to help feed your brain, a little fiber to keep things moving, and you know that we don't need to stop for a full plomik soup. Well, we know already then if time travel is floated as a possibility that Pike doesn't say, oh, oh, here's this helmet camera I have from episode two of this season in the mission we conducted to the second signal that you didn't bring up, Admiral Cornwell. Here, Leland, my friend, take this. What uh, occurred uh, back year 2053. Now, I'm not saying that the Red Angel passed those people through time. We know that they were instantly transported, but this is already a mystery that stretches out over a longer time. So, like, it's not going to be time travel. What is so confounding, and I mean that in the best sense, what's so confounding is that they give one of three options one of which is really, really juicy because probably we're talking time travel into the past from some sort of future. So whether it is Picard series or whether it is a thousand years from now, surprise, it's uh, you know it's a connection to that short track or whatever. Uh, there's all this interesting story space there. Then they kind of, for lack of a better term, they like they dumb it down or they make it they make it more pedestrian in terms of like, or it could just be run of the mill transporters or run-of-the-mill cloaking device so this is at a point where it really truly could be it could be anything and i have to circle back pete to it could be anything in an episode where the anything stuff that was being made 
behind the scenes was not good enough. Again, not necessarily the on-screen product, but we have some ambiguity in an episode that's about to have a major shift in the organizational chart. Let's be brutally honest for a minute. The reason that Berg and Harberts were removed directly, consequentially, was uh, harassment. But one of the other things that also came up was extreme cost overruns. It crossed my mind watching this episode, which I, th I think in my mind is like a four out of five in terms of the writing and a five out of five in the rest of the execution. So you get a 90%. That's a pretty darn good grade. Um, special effects heavy, maybe not to excess, but, you know, with all the mycelial waves and the time in the mycelial network, blah, blah, blah. So as I'm watching this, as I'm thinking about Berg and Harberts and, and thinking about what you just said, the budget overruns, it, it kind of crosses my mind could they have been in a position, Berg and Harberts, to say, hey, we know we are the crown jewel of CBS All Access. In fact, we know we are the future of CBS All Access. Darn it, if I just went $3 million over budget, you can't tell me no, boss. You can't tell me to, to cut back. You can't tell me to cheapen it down because I know what that graph looks like, that there's people out there that canceled after the end of the first season and came back for the commercial option uh, to watch the short treks, but didn't watch anything else, and then came back without commercials for uh, for the full season, and they're going to cancel again. So nuts to you! And it might have been, oh no, here's your banker's box. Take your way out. One last theory from me, Matt: the scorpion and the frog line. That is Buyer at her Voyager roots. There, referencing, of course the uh, two-parter from season two to season three, uh, Scorpion parts one and two, that the first appearance of species A472. And here I thought it was just a reference to the fable in which the scorpion needs help from the frog to cross the river. Uh, and the frog says, well, I will help you because surely you won't sting me because then you will die. And at the midpoint of the river, the scorpion stings the frog and the frog says, how could you do this? And the scorpion says, well, it is, it is in my nature to do this, even though it is, has led to our destruction for both of us. But Pete, whether it's a Star Trek deep cut or a reminder to fear Giorgio, I think both work. Thank you, Chakotay. With that, let's go to hailing frequencies. Frequencies open, sir. Pete, let's start with a poll that I ran on Twitter. And Pete, this was an episode that maybe not everybody watched right away because of Valentine's Day, or we of course have, you know, the rest of the world that watches on Fridays. So I had said with you know who back and you know who two back, but not you know who three back. What did you think of the episode? It was all highly classified. Four stars top secret, three stars restricted, two stars undisclosed, one star eyes only. Pete, this got no votes for one star, a wee 4% for two stars, 35% called it three stars, and 62% of people gave it four stars top secret. Yeah, I would tend to concur with that uh, rating, Matt. On Facebook, we had some people write in regarding last week's episode. John Stewart said the emotional beats of this episode were great. Fred writes in there that, of course, Fred 
uh, Petrich. We've never pronounced his last name. So, Fred, you got to hit us up with the proper pronunciation of your last name, even though it's Dutch and my grandfather was Dutch. But he had a uh, compare contrast two frames of uh, number one. 2018 airing here in 2019 versus 1964 Rebecca Romaine and Majel Barrett um, and John Stewart uh, continued there here's the thought about Stamets and Culber given the Greek underworld illusion in the title this for last week's episode and obol for Caron um, that could they turn Stamets and Culber's story into a larger illusion to the myth of Orpheus going to retrieve Eurydice from the underworld Matt, it's it's like this comment made four days ago. Witness the episode we we are podcasting right now. Uh, also, <laughs> consider that Stamets and Culber rely so much on their musical tastes for their relationship, and that Orpheus is the greatest mortal musician. You know what? Got to have that classical foundation upon which to build. Pete, a couple tweets here. One from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo 1983. He says of this episode, two weeks in a row where I've gotten misty during a discovery episode. Must have been the onions I was slicing. Smiley emoji. Uh, a pair of tweets from Karen Chu. That's at Karen Chu. Uh, I didn't like it, this episode, as much as last week, but uh, I was definitely way involved. I honestly think that if they'd removed Section 31 completely, I would have been amazed. But still, I gasped when I thought, you know who couldn't come through and got a bit misty when he did. Tilly crushed it too. And she goes on to say, it seemed like really high concept science fiction to me. I went back uh, to grab some gifts through, and by golly, if I didn't get absorbed and forgot to record. So my impression was I like last week more, but uh, this one captured me like a steel trap. Mary Jane writes into the Facebook page here. Mary Jane Dizak, uh, love the picture of Saru and Burnham. Like you, I went from thinking that there was no way that Saru was going to die to wondering how they managed to keep it so hush hush that he does die such a relief that he's still with us saru has already been established as one of the best trek characters ever don't want to lose him on a more critical note this episode was fairly heavily into techno babble Matt, you made mention of a couple of the more egregious errors made by the writer i spotted a few that were a few more that were real knee slappers. If I had my druthers, I'd opt for far less pseudo-scientific banter. The actors find it difficult to remember, and the writers obviously find it difficult to write. We don't need to know how warp drive or the transporter worked in the original series in order to know that they did, and the stories flowed better without so much detail. And when you do science, you should do it with a capital S. Great job again, guys. I'm reminded of part of the reason Jordi LaForge became chief engineer was because LeVar Burton could say all those techno babble things convincingly. Um, so it was like, so he's going to get all that techno babble in engineering while he talks about the this and the that and the other. Um, I don't know, time will tell in terms of how much science they inject into the series. One more tweet. On this end, Pete, from James, is at Big Killin. He says of this episode, this one pushed through with star power. Great setup for what's next. He knows more than me, Pete, because I don't know a darn thing about the next episode. Oh, wait do you see. With that, Pete, let's hear from our pal Fred in the Netherlands. 
Hello, Matt and Pete. See, this is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 5. First off, very cool that Admiral Cornwell is back. I really liked the role and I really liked the actress. So that's very nice. A little bit disappointing is, is that we still don't have Spock and we still don't have more of number one. I liked the cinematography very much. So lighting in the mycelium network, all the optical effects of the ship half in the mycelial network and half outside the Section 31 ship that is pulling the Discovery out. All, all very, very nice. And of course, the inside of the Discovery, and you see there, is again very, very nice. After they had announced that Aaron Harberts and Gretchen J. Burke were not the showrunners anymore because they spent too much money on season one and the first three episodes of this season two, I was afraid that after the third episode, the available budget would be a limiting factor of getting a very nice show. And indeed, for the first three episodes, it was, well, on a movie theater level but if i see this episode i'm very much relieved that they just keep it up with visuals and visual effects etc etc i wonder if you agree on that so it was a fear that was actually not necessary of course understandable i didn't like the whole thing with the cocoon and the mycelial network apart from the visuals, and not so much, because it gave me quite a Stranger Thingsy uh, feeling, especially when Tilly gets out of the cocoon, and uh, later on when we see these little mycelial things fly around, it gave me quite a Avatar, so the movie Avatar feeling. So, Dr. Kolber is back. On one hand, that's nice, it's actually cool, but the way they got him back was a little far-fetched i think and one nitpick i had and i didn't understand is why did dr Colbert, when he came back from the mycelial network was naked whereas when tilly went through it she was with her clothes what's that about what i did like is that the angel story was on hold for a moment so this star trek really has a bit of feeling of the old star trek tos and TNG to get more episodic. So it's a nice combination, I think, of having an arc and having some, well, problem of the week uh, stuff. Another thing I liked was that there were no Klingons in this episode. So that was all for now. Greetings, all the best. Fred from the Netherlands. Until next time. Pete, Fred mentioning their Cornwell back, certainly great to see her, and uh, a bit of a surprise that she's straddling this world of Starfleet proper and the 31. It is, but can we just say what a great presence Jane Brooke has been in seasons one and two, finally appearing in season two here. I did not know, Matt, until the hiatus between seasons that Jane Brooke was the receptionist in the movie Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. This, an actress, you look at her IMDb, you look at her resume, and it's kind of like she never had that moment. It never was that red carpet. Oh my goodness, you're the darling of this movie, or you get the lead in that show. 
that's not to say that you know she she hasn't worked and things like that but it's it's a reminder you know what she's gonna be most famous for this when pete when she gets beamed up to heaven like like the rest of us you know this will probably be the biggest exposure that she's had and you know what stuck with the career for a long chunk of time working actress character actress and uh now can go to those conventions and you know, have that have a well-worn uh, convention shtick where her and Mary Chief are going to yell at each other and uh, recreate <laughs> the, the the scene and whatnot and, you know, and have some fun, make some bucks. The cinematography, the visuals that uh, Fred was talking about, I get the Stranger Thing, and he had mentioned it last week as well, the Stranger Things comparison, but they made it their own. And, yeah, you sprinkle in a little Avatar on top of that, Um you know, they're not going to suddenly invent a, a new trope for alternate universes that are going on here. The layering, uh, I was glad they didn't do. We are now in mycelial bridge and they are on regular bridge uh, as an idea. It does make me wonder, you know, what's that what's that discussion in terms of, all right, we want to go to this different place and it's going to be special effects heavy. Oh, we don't want it to look like the two most famous, perhaps, uh, or, or at least the, the two most prominent in maybe recent cultural memory, you know, other places in the Upside Down and in Pandora. I, I know that, you know, it's been a while since Avatar, those sequels are, are, are coming, et cetera, et cetera. But there are the scripts to the Star Wars live action shows. I will say this from a, a literal visual point of view. I know that blue is the last color that our eyes can sense. I believe I have that correct. That's why filmmakers will light nighttime scenes in blue because your mind reads it as the darkest. But of course, you need to be able to see. Otherwise, it's a it's a radio show. So I think that might factor into making the mycelial network blue. Uh, Pete, from that blue void comes Colbert back. And Fred mentions that he's uh, he comes back naked. We see the tushy. Um, I, I guess I was I was a little less um, focusing on the incongruity of Tilly being transported back and forth with clothes and Colbert not, and kind of more going with that Colbert all but literally reborn fetal position in the nude, etc. Well, remember they needed to make the flesh. They had uh, he had come in as a surge of energy. Whereas they had transported Tilly. So that worked for me. Pete, as we continue to make our way through this season, how can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,311 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word. Like it today. You heard from Mary Jane. You heard from John Stewart. You heard from Fred. Get yourself on there. Interact with us as well. Over on our Pop Culture Podcast feed this upcoming week, we'll be back to talking some god friended me back to wrapping up punisher season two and of course here next weekend to talk the next exciting episode of star trek discovery so with that pete i will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word see we do what we do so you can do what you do